Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, November the 4th. We had Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca kicking it off. Dr. Isaac Bogush, Bruce Arthur, and a conversation about Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers and what happens next with his unvaccinated COVID-19 positive status. He's 37. He's healthy. He's likely not going to have any sort of bad health outcome. That's fine. But there are protocols and rules in the NFL, and it looks like he's been violating them for weeks on end. So we go there also. And Shiva Siddiqui and I discuss the new revelations about the track coach of Andre DeGrasse, Canadian sprinting superstar. We're just finding out about it near the end of the show, but we'll let you in on the very latest. And I'm sure we'll update it on Friday's live show. Here it is, the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks for finding us. Uh, joining us on the line now is the Liberal leader of the province of Ontario, and we do appreciate his time uh, making it for us. Uh, he is Stephen Del Duca. Stephen, it is great to have you back on the program. I appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing really well, Greg. Thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. Of course. Uh, this news yesterday of uh, no vaccine mandate for healthcare workers in the province. When it comes down yesterday afternoon, are you surprised? Um, you know, watching Doug Ford over the last number of months, I'm not surprised, but it's such a reckless decision, deeply, deeply disappointing. And I just I cannot believe that uh, Premier of Ontario um, just ducking responsibility and being completely uh, having a complete disregard for people who need health care, for people who work in health care. It's just outrageous. What is the culpability of Dr. Kieran Moore in this? I, I've spoken to you before, and there has been a, a shift in tone. There's been a shift in, I think, accountability and clarity about COVID that I think many agree has improved for Dr. Moore vis-a-vis Dr. David Williams. But what culpability does he share in this? I'll agree with that point. I mean, I have a ton of respect for everybody who's been working so hard um, throughout the pandemic, including Dr. Moore. Uh, and so many others, uh, chief medical officers of health and all the different public health units around the province. Um, but I said this throughout the pandemic. I, I had the honor of serving in cabinet for four years. I, I know where the buck stops and it stops with the premier. It stops with the person who's in, as we say, the big chair and the decision maker. And everybody knows that's Doug Ford. So this is the wrong decision. It was reckless. Uh, listening to anti-vaxxers outside of hospitals instead of listening to the people who are in the hospitals, be it workers or patients, is just outrageously reckless. I would disagree in some context with mandates here and there, and, and we can get into that in a little bit. But this one, I, I absolutely think this was the concept right from the get-go, is vaccinate all of those in long-term care, make your second stop all anywhere people will go for, for medical needs, uh, including right. emergency rooms, including you know walk-in clinics. And when the province characterizes it like, well, we're going to lose, people will just leave their jobs. They're leaving their jobs because, A, they're absolutely fried after 20 months of this. And, B, yeah. they don't want to be among unvaccinated colleagues. Yeah, that's 100 percent right. Plus, you know, I think you and I first spoke about vaccine mandates in, in healthcare. I want to say it was back in early August. Like, I made the call for this back in late July and the vaccine certificate. And here we are now in the middle of November or almost at the middle of November. The fact that this decision came out just a couple of days ago, after weeks of Doug Ford suggesting he doesn't really believe in mandates, he doesn't really believe in government telling people what to do, catering to that anti-vaxxer component of his own political coalition six months out from an election campaign. He's been undermining all of what we've, ne- what we've needed, strong leadership, uh, throughout this entire process, which is 
again, why it's not terribly surprising that he eventually did what he did yesterday. But it is so disappointing because there were so many things that they could have done months ago to prepare mm-hmm. Uh, to prepare to make sure we didn't lose people in healthcare, you know, like repealing Bill 124 that caps nurses' salaries that only a one percent increase. Internationally trained nurses and doctors that are sitting on the sidelines at Ontario right now because they can't get they can't get their credentials recognized. He could have moved them through the process. There are lots of things Doug Ford could have done. He chose the easy and reckless and irresponsible way out. Here's what we're seeing as well, Stephen, in, in the states uh, when it comes to vaccine mandates, which many states have. There are Republican governor-led uh, states that have decided that, that those are the places we need to keep safe is hospitals. They may differ with yeah. where you'd be or I'd be on vaccine mandates for this or that, but they want their health care and they want, to, they want their long-term care employees vaccinated. When push comes to shove, guess what? People do not walk the walk. They just talk the talk. It happens in a lot of circumstances. They end up getting the shot. And by going this route, you've empowered you've empowered anti-vaxxers. You just have simply done that. And that makes the fight harder from now on. You've empowered Doug Ford has empowered anti-vaxxers at the risk of the individuals who are in there getting heart surgeries, the patients, the cancer surgeries, their families, the other workers who are working in our in our healthcare settings. And Again, I just can't understand why any premier uh, would be so reckless as to say, I'm going to listen to the anti-vaxxers protesting outside rather than the patients and the workers who are relying on the health care system. He's got it completely backwards, not for the first time, but Doug Ford has it completely backwards. And it's just, again, it's very, very reckless. Stephen Del Duca is joining us, Ontario Liberal leader. Um, the vaccines are apparently on the way for five to 11 year olds. I, I know you've got people in your family that you'd yeah. like to get the shot to, okay, that you're kind of close with. They're your kids. That said, <laughs> um, you know, we're seeing it now in the United States and they're going to they're going to do put big numbers up. Um, is it frustrating to you? Do you worry? And this ends up being, of course, at, at NASI's doorstep and federal jurisdiction. Do you worry that Canada as a whole is going to be too slow, too measured? We fell behind in February and March uh, from where the United States pace was because of some dithering here and there. Uh, I would describe it as that. And I think it costs us some time. Are you worried about that here? Well, I feel I mean, it seems to me like we're probably going to have the approvals here, I would say, uh, towards the end of this month. That's just my guess based on what I'm reading and seeing. I think the bigger concern that I have was the announcement, two things, was the announcement by Doug Ford that, number one, they're not going to make this compulsory uh, or part of the regimen or the regime of vaccines that are compulsory. I've said this from the very beginning. I think the COVID-19 vaccine should be car- become part of what is mandatory for all students. Uh, of course, once it's, once it's safe and effective or deemed safe and effective for those under the age of 12, and secondly, I think we heard earlier this week, it's only going to be some schools that they use as sort of a, a center or a base for the vaccines in certain public health units. I, I've said now for weeks, if not months, every school should become sort of a vaccine deployment center. It, to me, it's the easiest way to deploy the vaccine for kids under the age of 12 once it's deemed safe and effective. So I'm more concerned, again, <clears throat> excuse me, that Doug Ford's being half-hearted. Uh, and also not going to deploy it in the most effective way here in Ontario, which, given that they've had now almost a year to be ready for this with vaccines, Greg, is completely, completely incompetent. Here's what I'd say. I, I, I Yeah, you and I might have started talking about this in August, but I know I was really disappointed by union leaders' responses in June when the school year was wrapping up. You're, you're praising teachers for everything they did through an incredibly 
troubling year uh, where they all were burned out by June. Parents were too, quite obviously, with their kids at home for 10 straight weeks to finish the year. And I'd say to leaders, I'd say to, you know, Harvey Bischoff, I, I'd say to Liz Stewart, what about getting your members mandate? You know, what about getting your members vaccinated with a mandate? And they would talk about that in the same language Doug Ford used yesterday, private decision, private. And they were wrong about that. I think there was right. And I think there was wrong. Look, we all make mistakes. That said, I, I think the five to 11 Age group, Stephen, that's a really tough one for parents because we didn't do it for 12 to 17. We didn't do it for 12 to 17. So all of a sudden, before it's even approved um, and available to parents, we're saying you have to do this for 5 to 11-year-olds just to get us to 90%. This has to be a personal family decision. It is for you. It would be for me, and I would vaccinate a 6-year-old, but I don't know that every parent's going to go along just to get along to get the city or the province to a certain number. Yeah, but I but I've called for for across the board. So the twelve to seventeen year old, like my older daughter, who's fourteen, she got it as soon as she was, you know, a, we were able to get it booked, and we'll do the same for my younger daughter, who's ten. But I I do believe, and I've said this from the very beginning, whether it's twelve to seventeen or it's those under, you know, oh those under the age of twelve, five to eleven, like all of the other vaccinations that my daughters were required to get to be in a publicly funded school, I think COVID nineteen that vaccine should be added to that list. If we had been clear about this from the very beginning, if Doug Ford had been clear about this from the very beginning, I don't think that we'd be having the debate as much as we're having right now. The problem, Greg, is that when a premier of Ontario continually undermines the credibility, if I can put it that way, of the whole need for the vaccine to be mandated, and he's done it continually for months, well, of course, people are going to have doubts. When the person who's on television regularly says, on the one hand, get the vaccine, but on the other hand, I don't like telling people what to do and maybe not, and parents are going to struggle. It's like he's trying to feed and under feed that paranoia that's not founded yeah. in any science and, and undermine the entire process, and that's not right. The one thing I would say is I think there's some debate. I know COVID's not the flu. I sure know that. The vaccines for adults make it, hopefully, that if we get it, um, the, the worst that we end up feeling is a bit of a flu bug. So no school district and, and, and no board, to my knowledge, has ever mandated the flu shot to attend schools. If I can make the case statistically, and there are stats to bear it out, the flu's more dangerous to young kids than covid I don't know how we can mandate the COVID vaccine when we don't mandate a flu vaccine or the flu shot. We, I mean, I'm actually sitting at my, my desk right now and I have uh, just coincidentally, I have both of the yellow cards that my daughters are required to have to be in school. I don't. Uh, and, you know, I, I can open it up and glance at all of the vaccines they've had to get. Measles, mumps and rubella is a long list, as you know, uh, that you're required to have. I have said from the very beginning, I thought I, I still believe COVID-19 should be added to that regime, to that list. Um, I said it when it was only, a, you know, safe and effective or deemed safe and effective for 12 to 17 year olds. I think it's true yeah. for five to 11 year olds as well. Once it's deemed safe and effective, I have no concerns with that. I think it's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, I trust the science. And that's the bottom line. Doug Ford doesn't really trust the science or the evidence. He's Playing to that anti the anti vaxxer fringe, but you know I <laughs> I'm a person and I'm a political leader who believes in evidence. I believe in science, and then I make decisions that are responsible and informed. 
I do think I, I, I hear that. I, I do think something like measles far more contagious, far more dangerous to kids than what we've seen for COVID for 20 months. If we're talking about spread, I hear you. If, if we're talking about asymptomatic spread that could go to a lot of grandparents say uh, you got to get the grandkids vaccinated or I don't want to see them at Christmas. But for their actual health, I think measles, I think mumps, I think chickenpox far more contagious and, and a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more bad outcomes that could transpire with those than with COVID. Wouldn't we agree on that? Well, look, I, I, I'm not entirely sure uh, what the levels of con- contagiousness are, if that's even a word. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what I do know is that after the past 20 months that we've gone through, uh, where we had schools closed repeatedly last year, uh, and thank goodness it's going reasonably well this year so far, uh, I don't want us to take any steps backwards. If, if those who have the expertise tell us these are safe and effective for my 10-year-old daughter, just like they told us months ago they were safe and effective for my 14-year-old daughter. And I said from the very beginning, these vaccines should be added to the list of what's required. I think if there's clarity around that and there's strong leadership mm-hmm. right from the beginning, rather than Doug Ford's dithering and his undermining of all of this, I think it's perfectly legitimate and the right thing to do to get this onto the list of the mandatory vaccinations that were required of kids in our publicly funded schools. And and I, and I don't see a downside there. I truly don't. Once these vaccines are deemed safe and effective for kids under 12, mm. and I think we should trust the scientists and move forward in that, in that way. What we've seen from Doug Ford is the complete opposite. Dithering, delaying, undermining, mm. and just hoping to get to the election and then declare COVID mm. victory and try to get reelected. And that's all Doug Ford's really focused on right now, the reelection for him. I hear that. Thanks very much for the time, Stephen. I loved our chat. Thanks. Uh, we'll do it again soon. Take care, Greg. We got a text in from uh, Sonny, who's apparently a doctor. So what? Does that make you better than me? You're not better than me. You're not. Um, he writes, the same person who can't eat at a restaurant with a knife and fork can perform a surgery with a scalpel without a vaccine. Same person who can't go to a gym can attend to a person with a serious illness without a vaccine. Seems right on course with inconsistent policy. Yeah, listen, I had such a good experience going back to the movies with my 13-year-old last week. If I could get a physical well at the cineplex i'm all in all in let's do it dr isaac bogosh our guest uh, infectious diseases physician and scientist that's probably you've, you've done a lot of media that's probably the uh, strangest non sequitur that's ever introduced you <laughs> thinking about well anybody getting a physical at a movie let alone me but but that's that that's the hip that looks like the hypocrisy we're talking about here. We all feel safe. Confidence grows in vaccinated environments. And the idea that a person would have to go to the emergency room and not know if they're being treated by a vaccinated person or not, it's stressful. Greg, I don't know what kind of physicals you're getting at the movie theater, but I don't know. We've got to keep it PG-13 here. Listen, we've, we've, we've got to... Like, I think we have to acknowledge that, for starters, obviously, if you're going to mandate vaccination in any sector, it's going to be the healthcare sector, right? We care for the most vulnerable people. We've already seen outbreaks resulting in death, even in healthcare settings that have been heavily vaccinated. Like, this is a no-brainer. I think we also have to acknowledge, too, that, you know, the vast majority of people in healthcare have been vaccinated. We're not yeah. talking about tons and tons of people. Like, most people in healthcare have been vaccinated. Um, and that's that's really helpful. Um and, and, you know, you're, we're probably just going to see individual healthcare systems like hospitals and long-term care facilities mandate vaccinations individually. I work at one, the University Health Network. There was very little attrition. We had a lot of highway miles leading up to the mandated vaccines. Every opportunity was made. 
And I think at the, at the end of the day, I think there's going to be very, very little attrition from from the hospital for unvac- people who chose not to get vaccinated. Well, a really smart listener related this to the mask mandate. And though, you know, we've moved the ball quite a bit forward and, and mask mandates started about, my God, 17 months ago, the province wouldn't do it. So municipalities did it on their own. So are you hopeful, uh, Dr. Bogus, that this is a bit of a domino effect and, and more than just UHN will maybe in the coming days will say we're doing it now we're doing it now we're doing it that may be the way to go yeah i think that's likely what's going to happen and uh, there's a lot of momentum from the ontario hospital association to uh, to do this and they've been quite vocal about this and you know you'll probably see most hospitals or m- the majority of hospitals start to do it like dominoes will fall but i think we have to remember that healthcare is a lot more than hospitals right we mm. have to think about long-term care settings and congregate care settings and outpatient clinics and, and these are places as well that care for vulnerable people that are at risk for COVID-19. So I think we have to keep that on the radar as well. But even if there's no provincial mandate, and again, I think, like I said, if you're going to mandate it in one sector, healthcare would be that sector. Even without a provincial mandate, it's still fair to acknowledge that the vast majority of people in those settings are vaccinated. I think that's an important message to get out, and and I'm glad you said it, and I think anybody that does what I do should be, or writes in the paper, should be happy to amplify it. We've got to document the uh, the, the general compliance and understanding about the greater good here. I just mentioned of 40,000 TDSB employees, only 100 didn't get vaccinated, and some of those aren't even in the school settings. They, they only found 16 teachers, so we should be doing stories about the 99.6%, not the 0.04. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you're going to be walking into, you know, the plague hospital where everyone's unvaccinated and like, it's just not that that's just not the case. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't Mm. be vaccinated. Of course, you should be like, what are we thinking? We're caring for vulnerable people. Of course, you should be vaccinated if you're stepping foot to work in a hospital. It doesn't even matter if you're a doctor or a nurse. Like we have lots of allied healthcare professionals and people that uh, might come into contact with patients. You just got to be vaccinated in that setting. It's as simple as that. Um, and, and, and again, the vast majority are. That's great. Is it good enough? No, we probably can do better. And that's why we'll probably see hospitals uh, and, and healthcare settings mandate this on their own. It would be much easier if you had uh, central provincial leadership and coordination to do it. It didn't happen. OK, let's move along and do it on our own. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, kind enough to join us on Toronto today. Any stress point whatsoever for you uh, with how much we might be behind in Canada getting vaccines to 5 to 11-year-olds with parental consent, obviously, compared to the United States? We, we were behind in general vaccines. Some of that was the approval. Some of that was procurement and distribution at the given time. Do you worry? Um, when I hear things like, well, maybe by the end of the month, that's that's this, this is a long month for parents to get through as we're all kind of moving back indoors with the weather changing. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, we can compare ourselves to the United States, but we can also compare ourselves to everywhere else in the world. Remember, we don't make these vaccines here. And uh, and we do know that we have to, you can't just cut and paste what the U.S. does here in Canada. You have to let Health Canada do their job. Health Canada and the FDA are different. Uh, they've taken different approaches to different products, as they should. Health Canada is very conservative, as they should be. This is the health and safety of Canadians. Listen, I think we'll we'll probably see these roll out before Christmas. We'll probably see these 5 to 11-year-old vaccines roll out at the tail end of November or early December. We're, we've been told that One Health Canada approves that we've already purchased about 21 million of these, enough for every kid to have at least a first dose that's eligible. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be very little lag time between now and approval and between approval and rollout. 
I think the key thing here is to use this time wisely. We probably have a few weeks. People who have concerns about this or questions about this, parents that have, you know, some, some anxiety or questions, now is the time to make an appointment with your pediatrician or your family doctor, whoever's looking after you and your kid, and sit down and ask the hard questions that you want addressed because this is coming through the pipeline quickly. Dr. Scott Gottlieb's going to be on our show Monday. Um, I've, I'm about two-thirds of the way through his book. I got a lot of respect for him. Um, and when when he talks about the 5 to 11 vaccines, Dr. Bogosh, he says, we really do need these in doctor's offices. There might be parents hesitant for a bunch of reasons, but one of the biggest things will be they're so comfortable in their doctor's office because it's a known commodity. A vaccination clinic, you know, in a big hockey arena or community center for a five- or six-year-old, that might be a little offsetting. Does he have a point there? Home run. Yeah. Dr. Gottlieb's been a very strong voice of reason throughout the pandemic. But yes, exactly. Meet people where they are. Meet people where they're comfortable. Family physicians, nurse practitioners, pediatricians, they know your child. They know your family. They know the context. And and these are, I think that's a very valuable place. Listen, some people have zero anxiety and they can go down to the local pharmacy to get this. That's great. I should also acknowledge you that pharmacists are a wealth of knowledge and can certainly help people out and, and address questions and issues. But again, it's the longitudinal relationship that you have with your primary care provider, like the family doc, the pediatrician, the nurse practitioner, whoever's looking after your family, that will be extremely valuable. Listen, we'll see multiple approaches. We'll probably see school vac- vaccinations in schools and community centers mm-hmm. and family docs offices and pharmacies, just like we did before, people will go to where they're most comfortable going. And as long as we're giving people a lot of options, meeting them where they are, reducing and lowering barriers to vaccination, then we're doing the right thing. And I want the the Health Canada, I'm sure you do too, the Health Canada messaging to be consistent and steadfast. I know you you saw it in the the spring and you were critical and there was a lot of wavering about AstraZeneca. Understandably so. It was like a windshield wiper back and forth and people just weren't sure what to do with it. We got to make sure parents with their kids, that's not going to cut it if there's mixed messaging. Absolutely. Just be honest. Just be honest. Communicate what you know. Communicate what you don't know. Talk about the, the tremendous benefit of the vaccines. Do not ignore any side effects. Even if they're rare, mm-hmm. be open and transparent about them. But of course, context is important. Put them in the appropriate context. Like anything else in medical, anytime there's an intervention, risk, benefit, alternative, context. Those are the four points we need to discuss if we're talking about a surgery, a pill, a vaccine, anything. And just be honest and transparent about this, and then we'll, it, it, it's, the, it's the right move. Obviously, there's tremendous data demonstrating that this is the right thing to do. But, of course, we have to acknowledge that some people have some hesitations and questions that are unresolved. Shaming and blaming has never worked in public health. It's not going to work here. Treat people with respect. Uh, answer the questions in an empathetic manner, and we'll get as many people on board as we can. Yeah, especially with kids, man. People people get their claws oh, yeah. out when you when you start telling them what to do for their uh, yeah. for their kids. Um, this we're lucky to have you any morning, but I think especially this morning, uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom is going to be the first country in the world to approve the Merck COVID nineteen antiviral pill. I think the last time you were on with me, we started talking about the initial research uh, and the press release that came out from Merck. What will this mean? Uh, and is there again domino? effect and there'll be other countries beyond the UK to do this. So fingers tightly crossed that this pill actually works. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. I'm cautiously optimistic. I realize just like anyone else, it would be great to have a tablet that would cut the risk of hospitalization and death by, you know, 50%. That would be amazing. But let's not, you know, jump in with two feet. Let's still have some cautious Mm -hmm. optimism here. We still don't know how this will work in real world settings. We still don't have a ton of data 
on this. We still mostly are relying on press releases. <laughs> like, come on, let's let's see some more robust data and let's watch this roll out in real world settings to see if it indeed actually works. Listen, there's been a lot of hype about other drugs before. Remdesivir is a classic one where it was built to be the game changer, the best. The, this is going to transform how we treat COVID-19 in the hospital. Guess what? It doesn't really work all that well. Like maybe it works a tiny bit, but it doesn't work as well as it was initially thought to be. This drug is in the same class as remdesivir, although it's in a pill form. So obviously I want it to work. Everyone wants it to work. It'd be amazing if it mm-hmm. works, but like, let's just, let's approach this with an empiric manner and, uh, and, and stay open-minded that maybe it will, maybe it won't be as exciting as we want it to be. Dr. Isaac Bogush, one of the best. Thanks for joining us on the show. I'll, I'll see you at the matinee a little later on today. I appreciate the time. <laughs> see you there. Bye-bye. Right. We have no time to die. Literally. Okay, lots to do. Uh, I want to talk about this New York Times excerpt uh, from the uh, the Scotty Pippen book. I don't know. Can we just redo a new? Can we do a new Netflix series that's just the Bulls from Scotty Pippen's perspective? He participated in the Last Dance, but I think we go through the entire. Eventually, we'll get to Canadian Bill Wennington. We'll all be retired. We'll all be on like our third pandemic, but we'll get there. And Bill Wennington and B.J. Armstrong can do like a five. It doesn't have to be ten parts or however long the Last Dance was. It felt like it was ten. Maybe it's more like six. Speaking of sports, if you missed it, this just happened overnight. Jack Eichel traded from the Buffalo Sabres. Um, I'd say the Sabres' long national nightmare is over, but there's no proof of that. Uh, he'll go to the uh, Vegas Golden Knights uh, for a package of players, prospects, picks, and other P words. But Jack Eichel now will skate when he's able to uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Bruce Arthur joins us from the uh, Toronto Star. Uh, that's great. You know, you give up your snowblower and some uh, and some winter gloves and you're living in downtown Vegas. Uh, you can't always get what you want, but you can get traded where you want sometimes, Bruce. You can. Well, and for Jack Eichel, from a hockey perspective, the Buffalo Sabres, I mean, we make jokes. But that is <laughs> we a, do? That's a really that's a disastrous organization, right? And it was a disastrous organization before they had the kind of the showdown over whether Jack Eichel could have a neck surgery that he thought he needed, his doctors thought he needed, and they didn't. Um, so good for Jack Eichel. It's it's actually good in the league where when when real players move, right? When they actually complete trades. When, like, when P.K. Subban is traded, when Taylor Hall is traded, when they get traded for each other, potentially. That stuff doesn't happen enough in hockey, and this had been a situation in the league where Jack Eichel was just sitting around. Now he gets to go to Vegas and play for a real good team. I remember so much McDavid-Eichel talk. They were going to be 1-2. There wasn't much debate about... about they were most, almost the most definitive 1-2 that you wouldn't, wouldn't even reverse. They weren't even like Taylor Hall and Tyler Sagan. They've played a combined... If you count the COVID season, I think we should. They've played a combined 12 years in which the Cup's been awarded. They've played a combined 21 playoff games. And obviously all of them are McDavid's. You couldn't have predicted that when they got drafted. Yeah, and you know what's actually too bad is that Jack Eichel, the other team that was in the mix, right, was Calgary. And you could have had Jack Eichel in Calgary, Connor McDavid in Edmonton. Um, that would have been, I think, pretty fun. Is Calgary the Buffalo of um, of Canada? Without Target and uh, an Outback Steakhouse. But, but it, still, you could maybe um, make the case. I mean, I... I would not say that the Ottawa Senators are the Buffalo of Canada because the <laughs> Ottawa Senators have had, I've, I've covered a conference final with the Ottawa Senators in the last five years. 
So, but still, they're probably the Buffalo of Canada. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and if Jack Eichel likes fossil fuels, that would have also been the place to, uh, you know, we don't know about where Vegas is going to go with uh, environmental policy. Um, the Kyle Beach thing is about a week ago, and we talked about it the morning after his explosive interview with Rick Westhead. Um, I want I want, I want, to get your read on what you saw this week from Gary Bettman and Bill Daly. I want to get your read on what you saw from Kevin Sheveldayoff. Kevin Sheveldayoff, to me, I'll say this, gave a little bit of a Henry Hill Goodfellas vibe. Like, now he's, you know, like in witness protection. Like, he knows things, and not, with the, not being with the organization, I, I wonder if he was able to buy himself into some degree of immunity. Um, I, I loved it when Bettman said nobody could recall him being in the room. All nine people. They couldn't even remember he was there. I'm like, uh, you got to speak up once in a while. Get up to get a bagel or something. What did you make of those two interview sessions with the media, Shevel Dayoff, and then prior to that, Bettman and Daly? With Shevel Dayoff, as much as, like, I can understand that he was the least powerful man in the room. I understand that People forgot he was in the room, but he was in the room. And the thing that keeps coming back to me is something former coach John Tortorella said on ESPN, of all people. He said all it would have taken was one good man to say, no, this is the wrong thing. That's all it would have taken for this to get derailed. And a conspiracy of silence only works if everybody's silent. And Kevin Sheveldayoff was. Now, he's escaped punishment in a, in a, in a way that Gary said this is jurisdictional um, I, I don't know if that actually works for this kind of situation because that, the definition of a whistleblower is someone who kind of goes above and beyond that. As for Gary, I didn't expect great things from Gary in that, in that media availability, and I was disappointed um, that it, it was worse than I thought. I just thought it was beyond the, the explanation for things that clearly showed the league has a leaden instinct on this stuff. Trying to defend the $2 million fine. A $2 million fine. You find, everyone says this, the New Jersey Devils, $3 million for a contract with Ilya Kovalchuk, which wasn't really that far outside the CBA that you guys wrote. Yeah. This, this showed priorities. And Gary had to try to defend that. If this was a real issue in the league, it's not $2 million. It's $5 million. It might even be $10 million. And it doesn't matter whether the Chicago Blackhawks are facing a ton of civil suits. The fact that when Sheldon Kennedy's name was brought up, Sheldon Kennedy's one of the great Canadians we've ever seen, former NHL player, 25 years of fighting against sexual abuse in sports, more than that, really. Um, and when people, someone said, Gary, would you call Sheldon Kennedy uh, because of his relevant history of experiencing abuse in hockey. And Gary said, well, you know, his, 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 his terrible experience wasn't at this level. It doesn't yeah. matter where Sheldon Kennedy was abused. Do you think he's never... Do, do you not understand that bringing in experts who have the vocabulary to deal with this, the tools to deal with this, is a part of what you need to do? That was stunning to me as someone who is a steward of the game of hockey. Um, and beyond all that, the tone, Gary just doesn't do empathy. He just doesn't. No, he he described it as an inappropriate response, and I thought someone someone texted me the other day, and he said that's like a fart in the swimming pool is inappropriate. Um, that's the inappropriate. So doesn't quite cover how the Blackhawks responded to Kyle Beach. It yeah, was an absolute I'm, moral, you know, obfuscation of responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like this. There are lots of people who need to answer for what happened here. There were the people who were in the room and who knew about this in the Chicago Blackhawks organization. The players who, who have, Kyle B said there were homophobic comments in practice afterwards, 
And there's been a, there's been very little reckoning among people like Jonathan Kays and Patrick Kane and Duncan Keith and these like legends of a three cup winning team. The, that that has not been terribly impressive, especially like you've seen an evolution where they're going mm-hmm. from from I didn't know to you know I feel pretty bad about it. Um, the union, how did the union drop the ball on this? That is stunning. Uh, you can at least you can imagine a team or a league as predatory entities as entities that don't care about the fungible parts of what actually make up the league, but the union is yeah. there to protect players. That's the job. So as my colleague Dave Fesrick said, if they weren't protecting Kyle Beach, who were they protecting? Uh, and then there's the league and the league needs to, the, the one of the underlying problems, to this is that the culture of silence of nepotism, of cronyism of, I know this guy, he's been good to me. That is a lot of what happened here as well. Bruce Arthur's our guest, Toronto Star. Do you buy the concept from uh, NHL agent uh, Alan Walsh? I've heard he's your agent also, but I can't. Uh, you know, I'm, we're trying to get a second source on that. Um, Alan Walsh says there's some there's a little bit of the ground moving under Gary Bettman. I never buy that. I never buy that because he hammers the players hard every time a CBA comes around. He he does what they want with Olympics when when he when the when the when the players want to go, he's there. When he when the player when the owners say we don't want to go to South Korea, he's like I'm with you. 100% we won't give in on this. So I don't know if anything moves the ground under Gary Bettman uh, for five or six owners to feel that way. What's your read on it? I'll believe that when I see it. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Is that Gary, Gary's been here since 1993. Um, he has established power, uh, base, connections. Uh, he does this job for a reason. And, and the reason is to protect the owners and in, increase their franchise value. And I'm not sure this hurt that in any measurable way. And I think that's probably what it would take. But I do think I'd never seen a reaction like this to Gary ever. Not when he was covering up concussions, not when they didn't go to the Olympics. There were so there's been so many kind of stops along the road where the league could have done much better and did. Um, but I've never seen the reaction like the, the idea of Gary resigning has never been one that even people in the media really talked about because it was never really going to happen. And it's come up more than once in a way in, in, in circles that I wouldn't have expected it. So I think it's something to watch. I think he's been weakened by this. What he does going forward, there's two things. There's one way the NHL usually deals with stuff like this is they say, you know, we're going to look into this and we're going to take it seriously. And then they never talk about it again because people forget. If that's the case with this, I think it'll be a problem. I, I hope that they do better this time. I only got a minute. You wrote your column about Doug Ford, uh, the vaccine mandates yesterday. And and I think you go where, where I want to go uh, with you. And that's the people that are doing um, Ford's bidding. Ford is Ford. Um, but I, I, I can't help but be disappointed that the health minister, Christine Elliott, there's never, ever, ever pushback. Dr. Kieran Moore is out there talking about boosters and he knows, and if not, something's really dysfunctional, but he knows that a couple hours later, they'll announce there aren't vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. Those people disappoint me. They really do. Well, beyond the merits of this policy, which I think I made pretty clear, I don't think it's a great idea. I think a lot of people in the medical industry have said this isn't a great idea. Of course, you should be vaccinated if you work in healthcare. It's the only thing that makes sense. Beyond that, look at how they did this. They sent out a request for feedback from relevant entities. Got an overwhelming number of hospitals in this province who said, we think you should do this. It makes it easier for us. It makes it safer. The Ontario Medical Association, Registered Nurses of Ontario, Medical Officers of Health, the science table with evidence attached. And what did you get? 
you got Kieran Moore on a Wednesday announcing the boosters, including healthcare workers. And two hours after that, a hastily called press conference after Doug Ford sends a letter saying, well, I heard thousands of tens of thousands of people could quit if this happens. And he doesn't have the guts to go out and announce this himself, gets Christine Elliott to eat it. And d- there's no relevant explanation yeah. for why they did this. They said, well, we looked at it and we think there'll be more outbreaks. There, there won't be enough outbreaks compared to, to, the, to how many people are vaccinated. They didn't show their work. They didn't even pretend to show their work. Now, I do think there's a lot of people in cabinet who come from very rural parts of Ontario where there's not a lot of COVID in their hospitals and there probably are staffing problems. I think that's a real thing. I think this is a Doug Ford production above all. And I think this is a province on the bigger picture that finds excuse after excuse to give comfort to anti-vaxxers in this province from vaccine passports to not mandating enough vaccines. And I think, I hope it doesn't bite us. I suspect it will. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, uh, every Thursday on the show. Thanks for doing this for me. Appreciate it. Greg, always my pleasure. What happens now for Aaron Rodgers, superstar quarterback, Green Bay Packers? And it's also weird, right? He wanted to get traded all summer. We thought maybe he's played his last game with the Packers. I sure did. I was wrong about that. He came back. But uh, this is a very unsettling story. It involves all the NFL protocols. Um, Jordan Love getting his first career start. Aaron Rodgers was ticked off in 2020 when they drafted this quarterback in the first round to be his heir apparent. Let's get uh, the latest on this. I had a conversation actually late last night with Dan Plucker, who's co-host of the Green and Gold postgame show, and I asked him, well, how they were dealing with quite a bit of news on quite a momentous day when things are going great with the Packers, all of a sudden this. It's it's cool because it gives us a lot to talk about in <laughs> Wisconsin sports radio and covers a lot of, of the slower times of the year. You know, we're halfway through the NFL season, which is obviously the the peak of sports talk radio in Wisconsin. But then you throw this right in the mat, like smack dab middle of the season. And it hits everybody's by surprise because in August, in, in late August, Aaron Rodgers was asked directly by a reporter named Ryan Wood. He, he works with our station as well. Um, he comes on our station every single week on all of our shows. And he asked, are you vaccinated? And Aaron Rodgers said, yes, I am immunized. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then he proceeded on to say that people have their own opinions about everything and all the vaccines and and went on, so on and so forth. But he made it sound as like he was vaccinated. And so no reporter went back and asked him, "Okay, does immunized mean vaccinated? And because everybody just assumed at that point that he was. And there was a follow up answer to that as well, where people were just thinking continually because of the way he was speaking that he was vaccinated and so when we get the news this morning that Mm -hmm. he has covid i think a lot of us kind of took us like a deep breath because we knew it was big news and then we were like okay well he said he was vaccinated and then 10 minutes later ian rapaport has a tweet saying that he's not and so then we're all in disarray because either he lied or he was misquoted And so that's when we all had to go back to that day in August Mm -hmm. and remember exactly what he said, because if we're being really nitpicky about it, he never actually said, I am a vaccinated individual. And so we all were thrown aback by it. And it sounds like some of his teammates were too. So that's why now the Packers are under investigation by the NFL for their COVID-19 protocols because some teammates didn't even know that he was unvaccinated. And there are protocols set by the league that differ 
for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. So for people not to know, even in that locker room, in that clubhouse seems surprising. Yeah, it's a hell of a secret to keep. And uh, this isn't, uh, you know, something that this isn't a golfer and his team on the PGA. This isn't uh, even an NBA team where you got the same 10, 11 guys coming into the locker room. It is you and I've been in NFL locker rooms. It is uh, it is busy and you see faces and names and practice squad guys. And it's it's tough to keep a secret among that many people. I, I, I'm going to come back to the present, but I will say Sunday I'm watching the end of the Packers in, in Arizona. Uh, and I'm just mm-hmm. thinking how well this is all going. And before we even go back to April, I'll go back to the start of the season. They get run over by the saints in new Orleans. Right. Like it's awful. They don't have a great start against what we know now is a terrible uh, Detroit lions team. Um, but since then um, I, I'm just sitting there Sunday going, they're beating Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. They're taking over first place in the NFC. Like for Packers fans who live, breathe, and die with this team and have had a lot of frustration, four straight NFC title game losses, Dan, this is just like a knife to the back in a way because it all was going so well in a year where it it, from the offseason to now, it looked like it wasn't going to. Right. And, And that is truly the crazy part of it because they've been winning without some of their top players. David Bakhtiari hasn't played yet this season. They're all pro left tackle. And then Jair Alexander got hurt with a shoulder injury. He's been out for several weeks. Devontae Adams was out for that game because of COVID. And COVID struck the locker room a couple weeks back when their defensive coordinator, Joe Barry, tested positive and was not coaching the defensive side of the ball in that Cardinals game. So against all odds, all season long, the Packers have continued to win football games and have beaten some pretty decent teams in the process, including uh, the Cardinals on Thursday night. So for this monkey wrench kind of to be thrown into the season with COVID, obviously it's unavoidable. It, it is what it is. It's the world that we're living in. And Matt LaFleur phrased it that way in his press conference today. Like, obviously we don't want to get COVID and we don't want any of our players to get COVID, but we all have to adapt and change. And it's the next man up mentality that you hear so often with injuries, but now unfortunately applied to COVID and the Mm -hmm. Packers have done very well so far this season with that. Now it's just with the most important player on the field with Aaron Rodgers and seeing Jordan Love take over. Yeah, and maybe the most important position player in the league. Uh, Dan Plucker exactly. is our guest, co-host of the Green and Gold postgame show uh, in Wisconsin. I, I want to ask you how this lands necessarily with a fan base that may have felt a little bit um, jilted. There's probably fans that understand Aaron Rodgers' frustration, and there's probably fans that don't get it and and felt the offseason might have been him holding the organization hostage. And, and you know, there's been that constant debate. Has he had enough to work with? Has, you know, aren't there other quarterbacks that have played with fewer pro bowlers over the last several years? You know, I, by the way, I go to Dallas. I'm at that game for BBC. They beat, they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. He wins the Super Bowl at age 26 or whatever it was. And you Mm -hmm. think like Dan Marino, when I was a little kid, you know, he's getting back. You know that he's playing in multiple, multiple Super Bowls. And 11 years later, it hasn't happened. So there's probably been frustration all around. How will this news land with Packers fans? Yeah, with this offseason, it's been really interesting, honestly. A lot of people are, the, the fan base, honestly, just altogether is split. There, there are some fans that are so ready for Jordan Love to take over at quarterback, their first round pick from last year's draft. And now they get the opportunity to see what Jordan Love truly is. And then 
on the flip side, uh, there are people that are Aaron Rodgers apologists where he can do no wrong. And even in this situation, they're still behind him and, and support all of the different decisions that he has made. Because when he said that he was immunized, he, I believe that he truly thought that he was because he took homeopathic treatment from a doctor, um, either somewhere in Canada where he was with his fiance, Shailene Woodley, or here in the United States. And he applied to the NFL to uh, be considered a vaccinated individual, even though he had not taken the Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson and Johnson that the NFL recognizes. So I think that he truly thought that he was vaccinated and he should have that status. Why else would he apply for it within the NFL? And when you go to the fan base side of that, some people take that as he's a liar and he's always been a liar and he, he, he's kind of an odd box individual and he thinks that he's better than everybody else. And those people are the same ones that are on the side of Jordan Love. I mean, I had a caller call in today to, and said, I hate Aaron Rodgers. And this was the culmination <laughs> of all of that. And then on the other side of it, like I said, people support him and said, well, if he, he truly belie- believed that he was an immunized individual and he couldn't get COVID or whatever it may be. And, and we're all just twisting his words and the media is the worst and all of these different things. <laughs> it's, it's crazy and so strange to be living in the world that we are in at, just with COVID going on in general, but then also in Wisconsin with, with this being thrown into what has been almost a perfect season without some of the top talent on the Green Bay Packers. Dan Plucker, our guest co-host of the Green and Gold postgame show on Toronto today with Greg Brady here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You're right about COVID and sports because we watched, you know, games getting played in empty stadiums last year, and I couldn't get used to that. Uh, and But this is even stranger uh, to, to think about the protocols. And, and document for our listeners, there are vaccinated protocols for players, but unvaccinated protocols. In in the NFC North alone, Kirk Cousins the Vikings quarterback is is vocally unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And he he mentioned earlier in the year, he and other Vikings have different protocols they have to meet. The problem here, as you note, with an NFL investigation is, and it seems patently obvious that if Rodgers is indeed unvaccinated, as would seem, um, he's he's clearly violated numerous protocols week after week. And and the NFL would have to decide whether to weigh in and and levy either punishment against the Packers for not disciplining him in the first place or making sure that he was or Rogers himself with a potential suspension. Is that out of the question? Uh, it's certainly not out of the question. And I honestly believe that we are about to see a turning point with the NFL, with what happened to Aaron Rodgers specifically, because as an unvaccinated individual, you are supposed to be masked indoors at all times. Aaron Rodgers has done press conferences in front of the media in Green Bay, not wearing a mask. And according to the NFL rules and guidelines, that's not supposed to be allowed. He is supposed to be wearing a mask if he is unvaccinated, even during a press conference. Knowing that, you look at Kirk Cousins from earlier on Wednesday, he did a press conference without a mask on. Mm-hmm. And there have been other examples within the NFL where we have seen vocally unvaccinated players who have not been wearing masks in the right times, in the right situations. Now, on the sideline, that rule has changed. Some some people were saying, well, Rogers should have had a mask on the sideline all season long. That rule is different within the NFL this season. It is if you 
are an active player, you do not have to be wearing a mask on the sideline. But if you're inactive, you need to be wearing a mask if you are unvaccinated. This preseason, Aaron Rodgers was on the sideline as an inactive player, not wearing a mask. So it's going to get really, really specific, I think, very soon here within the NFL. And I think they're going to be targeting these different situations and really pointing out these different situations. Nitpicky finds, I think, are on the way, not just for the Packers, who unfortunately may be set as an example here, but also for the rest of the league with these with the knowledge of this coming out, because with with a superstar MVP type player like Aaron Rodgers, in some people's eyes, lying about being vaccinated and then also triggering all of these and small and minute but important NFL protocols it could set a fire across mm-hmm. the league and we could really see something some significant changes and nitpicky finds like I said coming to a lot of different players and teams really interesting stuff uh there and and I I don't know where it goes but I know we're going to know more today I know we're going to go know more today that's Dan uh, Plucker co-host of the Green and Gold Post Game Show Okay, Shiva Siddiqui joins me now, uh, producer extraordinaire. Joe Walsh on the show tomorrow. That's exciting. Um, I've always liked the Eagles, and I've always thought his contributions have been under... Oh, it's not that Joe... Okay, it's the Joe Walsh that was a congressman, (laughs) uh, politician. He gets angry at people and screams a lot. So I'll be the calm one in our uh, political discussion. We're seeing this this morning, Shiva. Uh, The headline in the Globe, Raina Reader... Rana Reader, let's say that, um, who's a man, uh, Andre DeGrasse's coach to face investigation for multiple complaints of sexual misconduct. Uh, the Guardian first reported this in their early edition. Papers are earlier there. We're getting a hold of it here. Athletics Canada says they're aware of the accusations against Mr. Reader. Uh, it's going to an independent commissioner. They'll monitor a U.S. investigation, but he's worked with Andre DeGrasse now for three and a half years. And boy, off the Kyle Beach uh, revelations and allegations last week, you do wonder, uh, we talked about a domino effect and a you know a spiral here, whether we're just going to see more and more people coming forward and saying, I'm, I'm, I, I can't keep silent anymore either. I really hope so. I really hope that people, particularly I'm noticing that there are a lot of males coming forward, which I haven't seen as much of before in the history of sport. But I really hope that this does make people feel that they're in a safe environment. They can come forward. But it also depends on what how we're going to see what happens to these men, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what are they going to continue getting away with it? Like somebody, we had a guest on this week who said this is hockey culture, right? Pe- nothing has happened for years and years and years. Uh, and we see all of these racial reckonings and now, you know, with sexual assault, is anything actually going to change? And I really hope this makes people feel more comfortable coming forward, sharing their experiences. But to be clear, in this article with uh, Rana Reader, yeah. Andre DeGrasse has not come forward, correct? He's just his coach. Yeah, no comments there. And and this is an odd one, right? Because there isn't the same kind of infrastructure that I'm not defending the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm just explaining the logistics of it that you see this all the time. Tennis coaches, um, yeah, Gina, Jeannie Bouchard and Bianca Andreescu and Milos Raonic too. They've changed coaches like uh, like seasons change. Like they've all had several different coaches, and it's such a close one-on-one relationship. And I would guess a track and field coach is no different. So you're right. What does DeGrasse say? What does he do here? Does he stand by his man as it was? Well, this is happening. That's a really interesting call. He's got a brand. He's gold medal winner. Like every, he's one of the most three or four recognizable athletes. I'd make the case in all of Canada, and he's out there more. 
He is, and Rainer Reader is uh, attributed to turning his career around. So, I mean, this this is what the article says. So, it's uh, let's see what Andre says in the next few days. It's tough, it's tough for him, right? It's a it's a bet that you have to make when you back somebody like this. Um, and if if he's wrong, then I think his then people are going to play the well. What did what did he really know? And when did he know it? Game with you know a guy that did nothing wrong, but just may have associated with the wrong person at the wrong time. This makes me think of the culture of sport, Greg. I mean, it's coaches. It's coaches, coaches, coaches. I'm thinking, and it's not just across one particular sport. You're seeing this now. It's, you know, it's, it's quite a broad problem. And to have that intimate relationship with a coach, mm. what's happening? I mean, obviously there's, there's, you know, this power dynamic and coaches are taking, some coaches are taking advantage of whoever they're training. And it, it concerns me. It makes me nervous, even with my kids. I mean, when they have, they're, my, uh, we're a sport family. They're in every sport out there. I've got four kids. We're always driving them somewhere here and there. And I tell them, you know, never go into a room alone with your coach. And, you know, and some of them, you have multiple sports together. I'm like, okay, if your coach calls you in, you, you take your brother and you go in with your coach, right? For whatever it is, it just makes me feel well, like I have to protect them as best as I can. You, you do have to. You do have to. And I think parents can relate to everything you're saying. Uh, and there are coaches now that know. The coach we had on, the minor hockey coach, Brad Legassi, that we had on, he knows he can't be alone in a room with with a kid now. He knows that. Like, that's, that's policy. Don't put yourself in that kind of position mm-hmm. that there could be anything that was misunderstood, anything that you could be accused of. And, and I look, I coached house league for a long time. Boys and girls and kids – they get hurt, they fall down, they cry. You have to be, you have to be, I'm hyper aware that there's 50 parents watching me at a house league soccer game or a house league baseball game. And, um, and you've got to be cautious. You don't want to seem non-emotional and, and, you know, but kids need, you know, a pat on the back or uh, a firm word or a hug. And you don't know what to like. It's a tricky, dangerous <sighs> game right now. That kind of stuff is. Yes. Yes, I agree with you. But I mean, and I love this policy that a coach shouldn't be alone with any child or any person. I, I'm all for that. I agree with that. And even when the coaches do talk to one of my kids, they actually bring all of my kids over. <laughs> so I love that. And I, I'm trying to teach them this from a young age yeah. because it makes you nervous. Here's the one thing, too. And I'd, I'd love to broaden that out. Maybe we have a longer conversation about tomorrow is eventually when you're playing competitive sports as my 13 year old it was soccer they're going to start talking to you about conditioning like he's a kid that probably needs to gain weight he's six foot one but he's wiry if the coach said hey you got to gain 10 pounds of muscle i don't think he'd take that the wrong way but you do worry that a heavier kid if a coach said to a 13 year old boy or girl your kid needs to get into better shape if they want to play this long term well you got to be able to take that the right way you do but also it's competitive sports, right? So, I mean, you're using your body. So I understand that you have to make your body as efficient, as resilient, as strong as possible. So, I mean, heavier or not, whatever that sport is, you have to be able to be try to be the best you can be if you're playing at that competitive but level. But I worry that that gets classed as as almost a bullying tactic. If, if you're a female field hockey player and the coach, male or female, says, what are you doing coming to, coming to training camp in September? You're 15 pounds overweight. Well... Well, that might be I, true. That might be a factual accuracy, and it's well, going to affect how much they get their playing time. How could sure, it not? Sure, but I think it depends on how you approach that. You can't go say you've gained 15 no. pounds. Come on, get on it. No, but there are certain delicate ways that you can approach that uh, without shaming them or you know, yeah. causing future long-term problems. That's why when Adele called me and said, I'm, I'm going to you know, <laughs> make myself a little bit, uh, you know, you know, get, hit the gym a little harder and, and a few more, no. a few more kale salads, pounds. I was like, let's do it. 
A hundred pounds in two years. I don't believe it was fully the gym. A hundred pounds in two years. I'm just putting that out there. I'm glad it's out there until uh, tomorrow morning at 530. Thanks, Sheba. (laughs) Take care. Appreciate you listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show to finish out the week on Friday, November the 5th. Hope you can join us for it on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Until then, please do feel free to subscribe where you found us, most likely on Apple Podcasts, we assume. Uh, That's the best place to go for getting fresh content and timely content uh, after the show is complete, after 9 a.m. If not, we'll see you tomorrow on the radio. Thanks very much for listening to this.